We are going to be looking at Psalm 85 today. Uh, until the fall, I'll probably look at a few psalms, and that will be in preparation for the series I hope to preach on uh, backsliders are us, and who knows what uh, in the evening I'm still deciding on a book to preach through, so uh, this is a little bit of a um, preview of that, Psalm 85, probably not a psalm that you're all totally familiar with, as you may be other psalms, but uh, let us read from verse 1 to verse 13. Lord, you were favorable to your land, you restored the fortunes of Jacob, you forgave the iniquity of your people, you covered all their sin, you withdrew all your wrath You returned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. And our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Well, let us pray for God's blessing upon his word preached. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word and ask that as it is preached, we would be conscious that we are receiving the word of God into our souls and so to drink and taste and see that the Lord is good. Bless us for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. This is a psalm that I think, uh, as I read it, I felt very powerfully this week that this is a psalm for such a time that we are living in right now. And it may be a reflection of my own heart and I trust it may be a reflection of many hearts who are sitting here this day. And what I mean by that is that there is in this psalm a community lament by the sons of Korah as they think about the very painful reality that they are currently not experiencing the blessing of the Lord and they wish to experience the blessing of the Lord and they sing about how they can expect to experience the blessing of the Lord. And one of the signs of being under the judgment of God is to not think that you could be or are ever in a position to be under God's judgment. One of the signs that God has started to remove his heavy hand, as it has been called, is to feel the sort of pressure of your life And to understand that things are not as they should be. That is the first sort of ray of light into one's life 
where God's blessing is starting to move back into their life. To say, you know what? I am not where I should be. I am not in the spiritual place I need to be. That is a good sign. If you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, you know what? I feel a bit of a spiritual malaise in my life. I feel as though I've drifted. I feel as though I'm not where I need to be. That is a good sign in the sense that you are in a position now to read this psalm and gain confidence from this psalm as to what God has to say to you. Now, if you happen to be such a person, and I do not doubt that there may be such a person or person sitting here, where you feel a strong vigor for spiritual life, that when you go to sleep, you are praising the Lord. When you wake up, you are praising the Lord. And I'm not being facetious here. That when you go through your life, you feel the power of the gospel and the strength of the Lord with you, and you see blessing upon blessing. If that is who you are, then praise God for that. But I do have a suspicion based upon conversations with many in our church and what I observe, not only in my life, but in the lives of others, that this may be a psalm for you this morning. Now, notice that God has withheld in this psalm blessings in terms of fruitfulness from the land, which was a big deal because they entered the land that God had promised. He promised to bless the land with all sorts of blessings, and that is not happening. And so people are asking here for restoration. Now, we can look at this corporately or individually. The psalm is obviously corporate, but I do want you to Apply this psalm to your life. So in verses 3 or 1 to 3, we read of God's past grace. Notice everything is in the past tense. The verbs are something that have happened before, but not now. So God has done this before. What has God done? Well, He was favorable to the land. See that verse 1? Lord, you were favorable to to your land. Past tense. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. This is what God had done. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. So the psalmists here are aware of Israelite history. And one of the most important topics for Christian growth is actually to look at how God has treated His people in the past, because that can give you confidence for how He may treat you in the future. So, the hint in verses 1 to 3 is, because God was a certain way to His people, He can be this way again. Perhaps, like me, there have been times in your life where you just see the world crashing down around you. You read of this article of what's happening here and what's happening there, and you just go, come Lord Jesus, there's no way things can improve. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. I've had enough. Take me now, Lord. Except those who are just about to get married. They usually don't pray this. But, There are times where we just think it's hopeless. You need to be reminded of what God has done in the past because He is the unchanging God. And if He can bless His people in the past, He can do so in the present and in the future. And so notice the emphasis, how many yous or yours in those first 
three verses. Where is the emphasis? What you did or your land, you restored, you forgave, your people, you covered, you withdrew, your wrath, you turned, your hot anger. The, the ray of sunshine in this psalm begins from the very beginning and continues through to the end. But there is a path we have to take to get there. So what's the present problem? Well, the present problem is that God's people in this psalm are not experiencing what they perceive to be God's blessing in their life. And so they identify there is a problem. Notice verse 4, restore us again. That is to say, they don't feel restored. They feel as though there is lack. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Notice what the psalmists are doing. It's very important. They are beginning by reminding God of what he had done in the past, and now they are talking about who God is to them in the present, O God of our salvation. And put away your indignation toward us. That's the problem. They're aware that God is indignant towards his people. Will you be angry with us forever? They ask a question of God. Will you prolong your anger to all generations? So there is indignation, there is anger, there is again anger. If you go back to verse 3, you turned away from your hot anger. We have to ask ourselves this question. Is it possible for God to be angry with the church or indignant towards the church? Now, you could say, well, yes, Mark, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 19 to 21 are quite clear on the matter. It did happen in the past. But, you know, their problem was they had idols in their life and God got angry about that. Humans have evolved now. We have made great progress with science, with all sorts of things. And uh, we don't need this sort of God is indignant language. We don't need this God is angry language. We need the language of love. And you can live in the land of Mickey Mouse and Disneyland if you wish to. But we have to live in the land of the Scriptures. And I regret to inform you that to say that we could not ever feel God's heavy hand upon us is to say that somehow we are more spiritually enlightened and far better and not prone to idolatry as God's people were in the past. Such talk is quite silly. And what you find is that God in his providence has blessed the church at different times and in various ways. But even during a so-called time of blessing, take Puritan England, for example, when there was for a period of years a great revival of true religion, John Owen had this to say, and who would not want on Sunday morning a quote from John Owen? He says, the world is at this day full of poor, withering Christians. So what I want you to understand is, what he's saying in the 17th century, I'm now quoting and agreeing with him now. So I'm I'm not just letting John Owen do the heavy lifting. I agree with John Owen. But I haven't told you what he's going to say after this. How few there are that walk in any beauty or glory. How barren... How useless are they for the most part? Many men, I suspect women too, 
harbor spirits devouring lusts in their bosoms. Many Christians harbor spirit, Holy Spirit, devouring as you quench the Holy Spirit, as you grieve the Holy Spirit. They harbor those lusts in their bosoms that lie as worms at the root of their obedience and corrode and weaken it day by day. In other words, there are many Christians that harbor such idols in their life that they are like worms at the root that eat away and fester. And so very few actually walk with glory and beauty and power and vigor and strength and joy in their Christian life. Not that there aren't any, but there are few. And today the church is hobbling along in Canada. It's easy to pick on the United States. We do it all the time because we're Canadians. We're better than they are. But you see, in Canada, there was a time when the church had some vigor to it, some strength. There was times in society where there was an expectation one did go to church. There was an expectation that one went to church. There was even a time, whether this is something you think should or shouldn't happen, but there was a time when the Ten Commandments were even read in schools. There was even a time when prayer happened in school. We are so, so far from even a hint of that anymore. That you're happy in a Christian school that they might read the Ten Commandments. And I'm not even sure they do that. The church is hobbling along today, limping along, and lacks restoration. It lacks revival. It lacks power. And that may also be the case in other countries. I think the case may be that in many other countries there is a lack of spiritual vitality, although in other places there is a growing sense of vitality. The point is, this is a psalm for us to take seriously in Canada. A psalm for us to take seriously in our denomination. A psalm for us to take seriously in this church. And a psalm for us to take seriously in our personal and family lives. Now, is there hope? And the answer is yes. Look at verses 6 to 7. Because they've, they've addressed the problem that God is currently angry with them. But there is hope. Will you not revive us again, verse 6, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Why would God relent? Why would God turn from His heavy hand? Now in verse 4, He's been described as the God of our salvation. And here again, in verse 7, He is spoken as the God who saves but notice verse 6. The answer is right there. Why should God bless us? So that we may rejoice. To rejoice in Him. What advantage is it to God to bless us instead of to judge us? And the advantage to God is that He has people who rejoice in Him. People who love to worship Him. And that is the great battle in the Christian life between the duty that we face of having to go to church, the duty we face of saying, well, I better read my Bible, the duty we face to saying, well, I suppose I better pray because I am a Christian after all, and 
The joy of seeking God in the Scriptures. The joy of seeking God at worship. The joy of seeking God in prayer. The joy of seeking God among His people. And you will usually find that you will fall into one of those two categories over the course of your Christian life. There will be times where it's drudgery and duty bound. And there will be times when that duty also becomes rejoicing. And they are not just asking that they do what God commands them to do, but that they rejoice in the God who commands them to do these things. So Paul will say to the Thessalonians, rejoice always. Or in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 18, he says, yes, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's the goal of Christian living is joy and happiness and glory and blessedness in the way you live your life. And so they ask him, they pray, verse 7, show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. They are picking up on something God has said about himself elsewhere And it's one of the greatest declarations of the character of God, perhaps the greatest in the Old Testament Scriptures that you will find in Exodus chapter 34, because the context is Israelite idolatry. The context is sin. The context is God should just wipe these people off from the face of the earth. And yet, what does God say? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness. Why should God bless us and restore us? So that God can glorify His steadfast love. So that God can be faithful to His character, to who He is. And you should see in verses 8 to 9 that while this is a hope that we have, it must nevertheless be on God's terms. What are God's terms? Look at verse 8. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For He will speak peace to His people, to His saints. Notice how they describe themselves. As saints, even under God's heavy hand, they describe themselves as saints. But, here's the key, let them not turn back to folly. So what will be the mark of people crying out for God to restore them. It will be repentance. God is saying He will be faithful. God is saying He will be steadfast in His love and mercy. And they are recognizing that, but they are also recognizing that God's grace is not a license then to continue in sin that grace may abound. Let them not turn back to folly. God will be gracious. It is who He is. God will show His steadfast love. That's what He's promised. But you must not turn back to folly. To seeking things in this world before God. As the case may be. And surely, His salvation. Notice on God's terms, surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him. The fear of God, says John Murray, is the soul of godliness. 
And this isn't the fear of dread or terror. This is the fear of reverence and awe for everything that God has revealed himself to be in terms of his character. Repentance and fear. So then notice the sound of confidence in the rest of the psalm from verse 10 to verse 13. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. So at the beginning it was, this is who you were at one time. Now they get to the end of the psalm, acknowledging God's judgment, acknowledging that they must not turn back to folly. But look how confident they are. Not, we hope you will do this. It's more confident than that. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. Who was their problem in this psalm at the beginning? God. That was their problem. God. But who is their hope and solution in this psalm? It's God. That's... The great mystery of the faith in a sense. Your biggest problem in this world are not your in-laws or your children or your co-workers or whatever it may be. Your biggest problem in this world is God when you are living on your terms and not His terms. But God is also the solution to all of your problems when you live on His terms. God. And that word there in verse 10, steadfast Love. It is one word, has said. It's one of the few Hebrew words that people know. It is a very, very precious word. God is faithful to his self commitment. In the covenant relationship that he has with us, he binds himself towards us to act in such a way that he has promised to act. And that way of acting is steadfast love. And it's something echoed throughout the Scriptures in Lamentations, in a place where you might not ordinarily expect to find it. The author says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. But also David. David in Psalm 23 as we were able to sing earlier, says, surely goodness and sometimes you will read mercy, but the actual word is hesed. And so you could say, surely goodness and steadfast love shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, when David says, surely steadfast love will follow me, the word follow probably isn't strong enough. Surely steadfast love, mercy, will pursue me. That word pursue is used in the Old Testament of pillaging armies that come after people to capture them. And they pursue them. David is saying, surely God's not anger... Not indignation, not hate will pursue me. Surely, His love will come after me like an army coming after their captors to take what they have. And yet it's the flip side. God's mercy and love are going to pursue me all the days of my life. And what's so remarkable about that is the greater context of David's life. 
So if you're sitting here thinking, you know, I'm such a sinner. I really am not the Christian I know I need to be. I want you to just think about what David was able to write in Psalm 23. And I want you to think about an Egyptian king in the 3rd century. There's an inscription on a tablet of an Egyptian king in the 3rd century B.C. And the inscription says, I can take any woman, even the wife of a man that I like. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because when Abraham went into Egypt, what was he afraid of? He was afraid of Pharaoh taking his wife. Now the remarkable thing is, David became such a king that Abraham was afraid of. And what's so remarkable about that is not only that Abraham would be afraid of such a king, but that David himself wrote in Psalm 55 verse 23, men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days. And how many days does a Hebrew expect to live ordinarily? Seventy years or an extra ten by reason of strength. But was David a man of bloodshed and deceit? Yes. Did he live out half his days? No. He actually lived out his full life. And then you think about another king, another David, another shepherd who did not live out half his days. Because why? Because steadfast love and faithfulness meet in Christ. He took upon himself the curse that David said should have fallen upon himself. That Christ took upon the curse that was belonging to David for his deceit and his bloodthirstiness. And what explains this? What explains this but God binding Himself to us in such a way that He's prepared to give us His Son. Not just say, steadfast love will pursue you, but that He will give you His Son. In other words, the whole point of the Scriptures is to show that God's reflex action is not actually judgment. It's not actually to have a frowning face upon you. His reflex action is actually to show mercy towards you, to show love towards you, that what He did to David is something that He will do to you so that you can rejoice. That's your confidence. That's why the psalmists are so confident in verses 10 to 13. It makes no sense. They're under God's judgment and by the end of the psalm, they're saying this is what God is going to do. And we live in a day of greater clarity with Christ who has come. And so we can have even more confidence than the psalmists here. And that's remarkable. So I come back to the question. How do you feel about where you are currently at in your spiritual life? I did a... Forgot to tell Stone, but my wife claims it was on purpose. We had the Lesotho Orphans Run. We do it every year. And uh, I, I actually forgot. I thought it was next week because I like a little bit of time to train. And it's a good run because it really lacks any competition. So you can get a ribbon. 
And, uh, you know, I got first place last year. And uh, I had a title to defend, but I had just been on holiday with my wife's family, you know, and they, they distracted me from pursuing training in a rigorous manner. So I knew Josh was going to beat me. And it was awesome because I had prepared this sermon, and yesterday he's ahead of me, and the distance starts to grow over the course of the race. But one thing I noticed about Josh is he kept looking back. I was pursuing him. But we crossed the finish line, and, well, we didn't. <laughs> Royal we. He crossed the finish line. Um, and the best part, actually, was that they have categories. So he was first overall, but he was also the first teenager. So when they came to give the overall prize for uh, adult male, I got the first place ribbon. It was awesome, even though I came second. And Josh was furious about this because he thought, it's not fair that he should have a first place ribbon when I beat him. I said, yes, but you're the first place teenager. But last time I ran it, I remember I got 16.44 or something like that last year. My brain hasn't completely gone. And as I crossed the line, they read out your time and they said, 1715. And I thought, Mark, you've slipped 30 seconds. 30 seconds, you are slower. And I thought, this is, this is how I feel spiritually. This race is my life. That I'm slower that I'm less vigorous, that I have less power, that when I was coming up the hill at the end, I thought, you know what? I just want to die. Should have seen Barb coming up the hill at the end. It was like Usain Bolt, but that's another story. And as you have this objective ground, you can say 30 seconds slower. The Christian life, we don't get God telling us one minute slower today. Three minutes faster. It doesn't really work like that, does it? How does it work in our Christian life? I think the closest thing we can get to is that when you read this psalm today, I really think that the person, by and large, the average Christian in this church, notwithstanding someone who has been able to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior and has not been affected by a number of things that have happened in the last few years, most of us probably are going to find ourselves crying out like these psalmists, Yes, Lord, Your hand has been heavy upon us. Restore us, not because of anything that we can do, not because of anything we deserve, but restore us because of your steadfast love. Let it pursue us like a pillaging army and overtake us and fill us because our only hope is in that. And if you were able to do it to David, a man of deceit and bloodthirstiness, you can do it for me. And I know you will do it because your Son is where steadfast love and faithfulness have met. Your Son is where righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Your Son is where righteousness looks down from the sky, but also faithfulness springs up from the ground. Because of your Son, Jesus Christ, I have total confidence that you will not leave me in my present state of faithlessness, but you will make me to be one who rejoices in you. And there can be no greater blessing than to rejoice in the God 
of our salvation. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we thank you for your promises, for your faithfulness. And if indeed we do feel lethargic spiritually, if we feel as though we lack strength and power, let us not in the first place think that we need to roll up our sleeves, but let us simply acknowledge our sin before you And much more, let us acknowledge as David did your faithfulness, your love, your mercy, which will follow us all the days of our life so that we may dwell in the house of the Lord forevermore. Amen.